Hello, hello, and welcome to episode 34 of the Eyes Free Sports podcast. This is your host here, Greg Lindbergh. On this episode of the podcast, we are catching up with a deafblind athlete, and I believe this is the first uh, deafblind athlete we've actually had here on Eyes Free Sports. He is a young man from Massachusetts, a highly accomplished runner, marathoner, and he's also competed in several very unique events that uh, the average person probably would never be able to complete themselves. So let's get running here with episode 34. Ready, set, listen. Alright, so my guest on this episode of the Eyes Free Sports Podcast is a deafblind athlete and uh, very excited to welcome Brian Switzer. Brian, welcome to Eyes Free Sports. Hi Greg, thank you so much for having me on. I'm super excited to be here today. Definitely really anxious to get into your story. I know you've got quite a story, a lot of different things you've been involved in as far as sports and running and marathons and uh, so really excited to, to talk to you. Uh, so first off, Brian, let's just start with your early years. Talk to me about uh, where you were born and, and kind of your childhood. Yeah, definitely. I'm from Eastern Massachusetts, which is a little bit south of Boston. I'm sure a lot of people know Boston pretty well. And I was born with vision loss and, uh, and diagnosed with vision loss age four and born with hearing loss as well and diagnosed with hearing loss age two. And then around age 11, they were able to put it together that I had dual hearing and vision loss and I am from a family of four boys. Uh, I'm one of four. And so, you know, we've always been heavily into sports. Having three brothers, obviously, uh, we're huge into sports. Exactly. Very cool. And just thinking back to your childhood, and, and I know you mentioned, uh, you know, as far as Usher syndrome, I'm curious, how did you kind of handle that at the time when you knew that uh, you were losing both vision and hearing? I didn't know for the longest time. My parents told me probably around the age of, 11. I actually don't even recall the conversation. It was just something that they they did sit me down, talked me through it, but I honestly couldn't tell you anything about them telling me. Uh, I always knew I had hearing and vision issues because I had accommodations in place in school. I went to a school for the deaf as a child. Uh, my first experience in school was at uh, the Boston School for the Deaf, and then I went to the Learning Center, which are both two schools for the deaf in the Boston area. And so, um, and then I transferred to public school with a sign language interpreter, and I had a lot of accommodations in the classroom, um, things like making sure that they would film over the window to cut down on glare. I couldn't read the chalkboard, so instead of having a chalkboard in the classroom back in the olden days, we had chalkboards in every classroom. Yeah. So instead they, <laughs> uh, so instead uh, of a chalkboard, they uh, had put in a whiteboard and the teacher would use blue or black marker. That was a higher contrast for me. Um, and, you know, they would have me do large print and other things uh, to make sure I was accommodated. So I always knew I had hearing and vision issues, what the diagnosis of Usher syndrome meant to me um, at that age, I couldn't really tell you what it meant. Um, now, as an adult, as my vision loss has progressed, and now that I only see white, I understand it a little bit better. Um, the aspect of living with low vision versus living with blindness and what that means for me. Gotcha. I see. And then uh, just to talk a little more about your education, talk to me about your, your college. And I know uh, 
you're in a bachelor's degree, a master's, and you're working on a second master's, right? Correct. So um, after going to the, to school for the deaf and transferring to public school, I graduated high school and then went on to college. Um, I went to Stonehill College, and I have dual degrees in economic and philosophy, with a minor in chairman. And then after leaving Stonehill College, I got involved with teaching. Um, I started teaching high school math. Um, I actually tutored math from high school all the way through college, um, hmm. how I kind of got involved teaching it. And then uh, I decided to get my public policy degree in disability policy. Uh, so I went to Suffolk University to get my master's in, dis- uh, in public policy, focusing on disability policy. But I was really curious about the problem of um, why are so many people with visual impairment not working? Um, so I really focused a lot on that when I was in grad school. And then once I finished with that degree, I went on a whole bunch of interviews. I ended up started working at Burton School for the Blind in the career launch problem to do just what my degree is, um, to tackle this problem of unemployment among the visually impaired. And so now I have since gone back to school. My wife joked that I've never left school since the entire time we've been together. Um, and it's probably true. Yo. Um, so I'm now currently finishing up my set matters at UMass Boston. I'll end up with a, a, a certificate in uh, what's known as a CADIS, a Certified Assistive Technology Instructional Specialist. And then I'll also end up with my master's in education, focusing on uh, teacher of the visually impaired. For people who don't know, a teacher of the visually impaired oftentimes work with in conjunction with the classroom teacher, uh, sometimes on their own as well. At Burton, we have a lot of TVIs who are the classroom teacher, in which case they work with the students on a lot of things, both inside and outside the classroom, including the expanded core curriculum, which is um, what is required to teach someone with a visual impairment that could be on just the regular courtroom for a typical student. Gotcha. I see. I mean, I definitely applaud you for uh, for your work with Perkins. And, you know, they say it's, what, 70, 75, 80 percent. I've heard all kinds of numbers like that in terms of unemployment among the blind and visually impaired. So definitely a great program there from what it sounds like. Yeah, definitely. Uh, the unemployment rate is uh, really high among the visually impaired. Um, I've heard about 70%. And, you know, there's a lot of us who want to work. And so um, why aren't those doors open? Um, there's a lot of barriers to being able to work. And there's a lot of roadblocks that people put up um, that make it difficult for people with visual impairment to work. There's a lot of reasons why that unemployment rate is so high. No doubt. And I can certainly attest uh, just personally to the challenges of finding employment and you know, going through just countless interviews and uh, so really great stuff that you're doing there with Perkins. So in terms of sports, uh, talk to me about, you know, thinking back to your childhood, what was maybe the first sport that you played and, and just kind of your initial introduction to sports in general? I grew up in a family of all brothers, so we've always been a very sport-oriented family. Uh, my first sport that my parents put me in um, was baseball, which would uh, probably a poor fit 
Um, I probably only lasted a year uh, before I, my parents allowed me to quit. The ball was too tiny. The contract between the white ball and the green grass uh, was so difficult for the white ball and the blue sky. It was really difficult. Um, so it was extremely challenging for me of uh, that guy that they put way out in the outfield and hope the ball never came to him. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Know the feeling, yep. (laughs) (laughs) So then baseball, so then after baseball, what did you move on to? Uh, So I got really involved with baseball and soccer. Uh, My brother did soccer all the way through the end of high school. And so soccer was a good fit. Um, and I also really enjoyed bat ball. We always had a bat ball hoop in front of our house. Um, so we definitely got a lot of time in to practice. Um, and so I played both bat ball and soccer for a while. Bat ball got more and more difficult. Uh, the older I got, uh, the ball should move too quickly. It's hard to keep up. Um, where soccer was a little bit easier, uh, the ball on the ground doesn't move quite so fast. Um, and the good contract between the ball and the grass um so i continued to play soccer up until uh the end of middle school um but my vision kept on getting worse and worse over the years so um i ended up switching sport and that's when i first got got started in running um a friend of mine also one joined the cross country team so we both joined it um and a bunch of us all ran together um and it was probably the best thing that ever happened to me um running a touch and amazing sport it's very different than team sports um i find that you know each person set their own goals and try to achieve them and it's all a lot of people are into personal fitness and nutrition and being healthy and running and making sure everyone achieves their goals and feel good there's a lot of camaraderie with uh running um so i really enjoyed it i did soccer i sorry I did cross country and I did uh, track as well. Um, I really enjoyed indoor and outdoor track. Um, And then for a year I did swimming, uh, which was a lot of fun. I did both swimming and diving at my high school. Um, But definitely my deepest passion is running. Very cool. And I know that you also have played uh, beat baseball, right? Correct. Um, I was on the Boston Renegades a few years ago where a team based out of Watertown in Massachusetts. um, And we played beat ball which as you know is an adaptive baseball sport uh, for people who are blind and visually impaired and one of the really cool things i like about the sport is that everyone has wear a blindfold um so even if you have some mutable vision everyone's on an equal playing field wearing the blindfold and playing uh it's a really competitive sport uh there's a lot of diving on the ground catching running and it's a lot more challenging than people think i remember we played a game against a uh, local uh legal um company and uh so they were all typically sighted we put the blindfolds on them and had them bat and stuff and you know within 10 seconds they're all taking their blindfolds off and trying to bat without the blindfold on uh i think it was a little more challenging than they were that big exactly no doubt and just out of curiosity did you you know when you did play and in terms of your hearing impairment was that a challenge at all as far as hearing the ball yeah that was a a real challenge. Um, I have difficulty hearing high frequency, and that ball is a higher frequency ball. Um, so that would, that 
definitely posed a challenge. I do encourage people to at least try it and go out and see uh, how well you do at it. Um, I would, well, one good thing my parents have always instilled in me is, you know, at least go out and try before you decide to weave it. Uh, make sure you're weaving for the right reason. Um, so I'm really glad I played beatball when I did. Um, I really enjoyed it. Nice. Yeah. And I know just being quite involved in beatball, the Renegades are one of the top teams. So that's pretty cool. You got to play with, uh, you know, some of the best players going. <laughs> Definitely. So in terms of, uh, you know, running and competitive running, I know you mentioned uh, running cross country in high school. And so then when you got to college, uh, did you actually run in college? I did not. Uh, unfortunately, I would too focus on my schoolwork. Um, I don't know how people balance both running trap and athletics and doing schoolwork as well. So I admire people who did run in college. Obviously, I ran in my free time. Stonehill College is near a, um, what's known as the National Reported Trust, which is a, a giant plot of land right next to Stonehill College. Um, and it's a wonderful place to go and run. And so in my free time, when I could, I'd go running all the time. Gotcha. Very cool. And so definitely want to get into, I know you've uh, competed in multiple marathons and some other pretty cool events and I think I had read, was it uh, was it the New York City Marathon that was your first half marathon? Yeah. So I had left running for a little bit. My vision got worse and worse. Um, I no longer felt safe running independently. I was bumping into people, hurting myself. So I altogether quit running, quote unquote quit. Hmm. And then a friend of mine named Marco from um, Germany had reached out to me and asked me if I would be interested in running the New York City half marathon. And I replied back to him. I said, I don't know if I feel comfortable doing that. Like it's been a few years since I've run. And he said, how about I got you using a piece of rope and we'll just run it together. Uh, you know, you and me. And I said, sure, that sounds great. Um, we end up running the New York City half marathon in support of two little girls with Utter syndrome um, they wanted to do a trip to Paris um, before they got older and lost more of their vision. So it was definitely a passion, a passion project. I was very excited to do it in support of them. And they did end up going to Paris and having gelato. And I've heard they had a lot of fun while they were there. So we ended up doing the New York City half marathon. And after doing the New York City half marathon, Marco and I said, why not try a full marathon? Like we clearly can do this for the half. Yeah. So someone who was a member of the Usher Syndrome Coalition asked that we be interested in running the Equinox Marathon in Alaska um, because they it was in support of Usher Syndrome Awareness Day, and so we said sure. Um, it sounds like a lot of fun. I've never been to Alaska before then, um, so it was a lot of fun to be able travel up to Alaska and run the marathon known as the Equinox Marathon. It's widely considered to be the fifth toughest marathon in the world. Um, So yeah, uh, it was quite a challenge to say the least. Um, You know, kind of, it was our first time doing a marathon. uh, So to do it at one of the toughest courses in the world was a lot of fun. Definitely was difficult. But I love a good challenge, so it would, I really enjoyed it. Some of the things that make it the most difficult is um, the weather is unpredictable. 
um, and the uh, altitude. There's a part of the course called Ender Dome, where you're going straight up the side of a mountain up over, and then you whoop back up over the top again and then climb back down. So there's a lot of elevation changes throughout the course. And we had pretty good weather, um, but as you climb the mountain, it did start to snow because you are going higher and higher in altitude. Um, So we experienced snow throughout the course, uh, which I wasn't fully prepared for. Um, As someone with uh, dual hearing loss, I end up having to take my hearing aids out uh, because hearing aids, when they get wet, tend to break and are no good after that. Hmm. So, uh, and I also wasn't prepared to get that wet um, because, you know, once you're wet and cold and you're running, it it's definitely a challenge. But somehow we were able to do it. I wouldn't say it was our fastest time. It is a, considered to be a boxing qualifier, but nobody qualifies every year on for the Boston Marathon using that court. Uh, it's just so difficult to get that time. Wow. And I'm curious, what time of year, when was that, that you actually went to, you know, in Alaska? September. Um, so it's starting to get cold. Um, um, Fairbank does get to be negative 50 in the dead of winter. Wasn't quite that cold. It was probably in the 20s, um, but it was still pretty chilly. I was coming from Boston, which was 80 degrees that day. And <laughs> when we landed, it was like in the 20s. Wow. And wow, that's that's pretty warm for Boston, too, that time of year. I did want to talk about the, the adaptations of running. I know you mentioned the, the tether, and if you could just describe that a little more and how that all kind of works. There are two kinds of tethers that people typically use. One is a rigid tether. And the other one is a non-rigid tether. Um, so people, um, if you have some mutable vision, oftentimes people like to use a non-rigid tether where um, you're attacked by some kind of elastic band or rope um, so that the person can somewhat guide you. And there are also people who might be guided by someone who is, they're not attached at all. Maybe they're wearing a neon colored shirt or uh, yellow lime colored shirt and they'll run that to the person and kind of help make sure that they don't trip over any obstacles and make sure that they stay on course and help them navigate around and for someone like me i typically like use a rigid tether um, i've actually created my own out of a, a mobility cane for someone who's visually impaired i took a section of it and you grip tape um, and that seemed to work really well at night and lightweight, uh, and the grip tape make it easier to grip, uh, while you're running. So then I naturally feel the person as they're guiding me, uh, they're turning left, they're turning right. And I get a good sense of where they're headed. As I'm sure, you know, you know, when someone who typically said it said, Oh, over there to your right, <laughs> you know, that can be, uh, you know, at two o'clock at four o'clock, uh, oh, yeah. you know, it can be anywhere to your right. Yep. And uh, then do you run like side by side directly next to the person? Or Yeah, we typically run side by side. When we were in Alaska, Marco and I, uh, we came across a few sections of the course where we uh, had to run one behind the other. Um, it yep. can be done at a little more of a tripping hazard, but I, uh, there's always the potential that you um, step on the person in front of your feet. But yeah, typically we run side by side. I like to wear a vest 
a neon vest that says blind. Uh, I find especially running around Boston, it helps make sure that people give you a little bit of space when you're running around. Interesting. Very cool. And let's talk about just the relationship with the the guy that you're running with and, and just kind of the communication, you know, throughout a race and just how all that works. The guide usually runs a little bit faster than you. Obviously, you don't want a guide that runs slower than you, then they'll slow you down. Um, so typically, they match you up with a guide who is a little stronger, a little faster. So then they're slowing down to your base and they should be able to maintain your base all throughout. For the Boston Marathon and a few different marathons they'll actually have you run with two guides and they'll switch out halfway and that's great because obviously a whole marathon the long time be running and the guys get tired and worn out obviously a lot of the people that guide us can run a full marathon but you know guiding itself uh you have to be able to talk the whole time which means you have to be able to run at a pace where you can still talk and not get worn out and it's a lot more challenging than people realize so the guys um, they typically communicate with you all throughout the race. They'll tell you turn left, right, watch out for that curb, uh, step up, um, step down. We're going to be running across rock now. Uh, maybe do some high need, but there's a bunch of roots around. Um, so they're communicating with you the whole time. And they're the whole, you know, you have to have your total trust in them. Um, but they are going to guide you and make sure that you're safe throughout the race um you know they're gonna be making sure you're able to navigate around trees and street poles and other runners um so there's a huge component of trust there if i don't feel run comfortable running with you then i'm not going running at all because i have to be able to trust that my guy to keep me safe throughout the race yeah, that's a great point for sure. Uh, so I understand that you did compete in the is it the Radnar Relay Ultra in New Hampshire? I did. There was a team of us who were all blind and visually impaired. Uh, some people from Boston, some people from New York, uh, and other places across the U.S. Um, we got together to form a team to run the Radnar Relay in New Hampshire called Reach the Beach. And we started in the White Mountains of New Hampshire, and we ran to Hampton Beach in New Hampshire. And for the people who don't know, Ragnar Relay, uh, it's a relay race that um, encompasses about 200 miles. Uh, it's like a two-day race. Um, you live and eat out of a van. You form a team, and people switch off throughout the race. We did a ultra version of it. Um, each runner had to run over 30 miles uh, in order to finish the race. And we were the only team that did the, we did double the miles of every other team because we were also running with a guide. So each leg we ran, we had two people from our team running each leg. Um, so our team actually ran double the distance of every other team out there. And so the guides, um, they guided us, obviously, but they all drove the vans. Obviously, being on a team of all visually impaired athletes, uh, nobody wants us driving the vans. So right. they were also responsible for that. <laughs> yep. Wow. And this was quite a long event, right? Yeah. Uh, it goes over two days um, or so. Um, you're running through the middle of the night while everyone else is sweeping. You're running out by the street in front of their house it's a lot of fun it definitely get cold and uh you're definitely sweep the fry while you're running 
Um, you're low on energy. It's a long race, but it's a lot of fun. It, you know, the most you'll ever get be with another person is, um, you know, when you're cold and tired and hungry and you're all hanging out in the same band together. Um, you'll never get known the person like that. Exactly. That's so cool. That's such a kind of be such a unique event. And I would imagine you were just incredibly exhausted afterward. Yeah, definitely. Um, and, uh, and, uh, we were the first team of all visually impaired athletes to do the Ragnar relay ultra and finish. Wow. That's awesome. And is that uh, like an annual event, or do you know how often they actually have that? Yeah, they do it every year. I'm not sure about this year. Um, right. A lot of running events have been postponed, but yeah, they do it annually. Very cool. Uh, so really fascinated to talk to you about uh, rucking and actually running with you know weight essentially on your back. And talk to me about uh, how you got into that and, and how you've trained for that. Yeah, uh, rutting is a whole another experience. Uh, people aren't familiar with it. Uh, you're basically running with a weighted bat bat. And how I got involved with it is uh, I have a brother-in-law who uh, served in the military and is part of a veteran group called Heroes in Transition, uh, which helped uh, people had they returned from the military back to civilian life adjust in a number of ways. Um, you know, they group do group sessions um they can do home modifications if you uh, are disabled they can provide service dogs um they do a lot of really cool things for veterans in order to help them out so he asked me if i'd be interested in this race and as you know me doing my first marathon in the middle of alaska uh <laughs> i said wow that sounds even crazier than the time i was in alaska so why not <laughs> yeah uh and basically what the rut is, um, you run with a 30-pound backpack. It symbolizes the weight that veterans carry with them when they return home. And you do a relay. Um, it's a little over 200 miles, 220 miles, I believe, from the end of Cape Cod to the tip, Town, and back again to the edge of Cape Cod again. And so the race was started by a couple of veterans who ran from Boston to um, the Freedom Towers in New York City and back again. And so that's where they came up with the 220-mile marker. And it's a relay. So, you know, you run three or four miles at a time, and then you switch off to other people on your team. And you have vans, and the vans follow you around. Um, it's a 36-hour race. So you end up pretty sweep the pride you only have two hours from the last time you finish running to the next time you start running so not much of a break um very sweep to pride energy to pride i'm very fortunate say in injury free throughout the race but a lot of people do end up injured very challenging running with 30 pounds on your back i remember i ran with a guide who you know was like oh 30 pounds like that's pretty light you know, I carry my laptop and my backpack sometimes to work, and I gave them my backpack, and they're like, ooh, that is very different than a laptop in your backpack. Um, <laughs> it's, it's quite heavy. Uh, the mm. first time I ran with it, I felt super top-heavy. I thought I was going to fall over. It took me a long time to get you to running with the 30-pound backpack. It's a different kind of, like, leg strength that you need, uh, but I'm so used to running forward and projecting myself forward. 
but there's a certain amount of leg strength you need to like support yourself with the extra weight. Um, yeah, it's a totally different experience. Wow. And that backpack, is that like rocks or what's actually in that? You can do rocks. Um, we typically do uh, bags of rice. Uh, you buy, you know, the five pound bags of rice and stuff them in your backpack. I made this mistake of doing weights. Uh, the first time I did it, I put a couple of kettlebells in my backpack. Uh, the hard part about that is that they end up banging against your back. And uh, yeah, I had a few bruises the first time <laughs> I ran with the kettlebells in my backpack. Uh, bags of rice tend to work a little bit better. <laughs> gotcha. Wow. That's uh, pretty crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Um, uh, so I understand that, uh, as far as that, uh, you know, the rucking that, did I read that you actually can use a white cane as well to kind of help you with that race? I typically have a guide and that guide will use the rigid tether like we do when we're running and that guide will hold that tether and we'll run together. Uh, obviously during our downtime, I'll use my cane. It's a little bit too much. I do have a guide dog. Uh, but having the guide dog in the van for 36 hours straight would be a lot for her and I. But I would love to do at least a portion of the rock. Maybe uh, in April, we'll do a portion of it together. Oh, I see. Very nice. Um, I know you did mention your guide dog. Talk to me about uh, which school your dog is from and, and the name and breed and give me the, the lowdown on your guide dog. Her name is uh, Intrigue. Like I read an intriguing book hmm. from Guiding Eye for the Blind and Yorktown Heights, New York, and she's one of a handful of running guide dogs, official running guide dogs in the U.S. Um, so she does run and train with me. She absolutely loves going for runs and being able to be with me. Uh, I think, honestly, anything I do, she just wants to be a part of, and she's an amazing dog. She's a Labrador retriever. Um, believe it or not, she's not just one color, but two. She's black and tan. Have you ever seen a Rottweiler? She had similar coloring to that. Um, she'd mostly black, but then she had brown on her paws and on her muzzle and above in her eyebrows are brown as well. She's an amazing dog. We just celebrated our five-year anniversary together. Wow. Congrats. Yeah, I know that's such a neat program that Guiding Eyes has. And I've talked to a few other uh, you know guests on this podcast that have, have gone through that and Definitely interesting as, as far as the training, I would imagine it's, it's a very different type of training that they, you know, put those dogs through to, to be able to have them to be so active, right? Yeah, definitely. Um, they wear a different harness than your typical working guide dog that the uh, harness, the little more comfortable for the dog to be able to run and free up their joints a little bit more so they're comfortable while they're running. And the dogs have to be selected for it. You know, not every guide dog is meant to be a running guide dog. They have obviously enjoy running and being with their handler. Um, and, they, you know, it's hard work, um, but she really enjoys it. Nice. Awesome. Uh, I understand that you've also done uh, some work, you know, working in assistive technology and accessibility that you've actually worked with uh, some of these companies and apps like uh, Runkeeper and Strava, if you could talk a little bit about that. Correct. Uh, so my current role at Perkin as part of the Career Launch Program is I'm the Asset Technology Instructor. So I work with students um, as they're getting ready for work to make sure that they're up to snuff with their asset technology, whether or not they use a screen magnifier or a screen reader or a braille display, 
making sure that they're comfortable using those technologies. And then we also go through a lot of productivity tools like Microsoft Word, Microsoft Excel, Google Sheet, Google Docs, um, a lot of those basic workplace tools that pretty much any workplace you go into, you're going to be using. And then we also go over a what's known as a CRM, a customer relationship manager. Um, the one we typically use at Salesforce. And the easiest way to explain it is it's just a database um, where companies store information about that customer that they can pull up when a customer calls and get their order details or their booking history, any kind of information on that customer that they might be calling about and make sure that they're able to resolve their issue. Um, we also do teach um, what's known as accessibility apps. Um, so there can be app like Scene AI, uh, Voice Dream Scanner, a lot of the apps that they might use in a workplace that are intended for people who are visually impaired um, to help them maximize their potential. I've also done accessibility testing, as you mentioned, uh, for Strava and RunKeeper, two great fitness apps uh, for people who are runners or bikers or any kind of fitness that you might do. Um, they're committed to making sure that it's acceptable for people with visual impairments. Um, so I got the great pleasure of trying them out, going on a few runs and trying out the apps and uh, giving them feedback on uh, where they could improve or uh, where they excel. Very cool. And that's, uh, once again, really applaud you for that work just uh, as another way to you know, make fitness, whether it's running or really anything more accessible to those with disabilities. Uh, so thank you for your work on that. Yeah, I really enjoy it. Um, I wish I could say I do it for other people, but I really do it for myself that I want to go out and run and do all these things. So um, but I'm happy that other people, you know, making it more acceptable for other people. Um, it's definitely um, great thing as well for sure you know and uh, just to kind of wrap up the sports uh you know talk here as far as goals what other any other sports you'd like to try as far as running any goals that you really still have and would like to accomplish yeah whenever international travel opens up i know marco and i are hoping to go back to alaska there's an ultra marathon the same course we did last time except longer we're hoping to do that at some point I'd love getting to triathlons. As I mentioned before, I've done swimming. Uh, cycling will be somewhat new to me, but I'd love getting to all three sports and do a triathlon at some point, hopefully soon. Um, there's a few marathons opening up in the fall, um, so I'm definitely looking forward to getting back out there and running again soon. Awesome. Definitely wish you a lot of luck uh, with all those things. I know you've already accomplished a lot, but... Uh... Sounds like you've got a lot more, you know, in the works. Definitely. I love a good challenge and being able to compete with uh, typically sighted people and we're on a level playing field. I look forward to always being able to do that. Um, you know, the nice thing about uh, a lot of these sports is even though I'm visually impaired, nobody can take away any of those accomplishments. Uh, you know, I'm on the same track or courses someone who typically cited so it's really fun to be able to compete on a equal playing field absolutely no doubt about that and then uh just a final question here I, I did want to give you a chance to talk about the two books that you've uh, contributed to yeah uh the first book is called what my choose an anthology on utcher syndrome uh where we took a bunch of stories from people 
who live with Utter syndrome, which is the main cause of deaf blindness out there. And we just gave um, a space for people to tell personal stories. Um, a lot of the literature you'll see on Utter syndrome come from the medical community, uh, which are great, means that they're doing great research out there. Um, but parents of children with Utter syndrome very rarely hear the other side of the story. Those of us who live with Utter syndrome and are, you know, living successfully and uh, very content lives. Um, I know when my parents got the diagnosis, they thought I was going to be stuck at home living with them forever. And that's not the case. I live in a house that my wife and I bought with two amazing dogs, including Intrigue. And my wife is expecting our first baby. So, you know, uh, yeah. Congrats. So so, (laughs) thank you. Thank you. Uh, so, you know, the, the life that my parents never would have imagined when I was a kid and, um, you know, the, the way you can live, even if you have something like Usher syndrome. Uh, the second book is called What My Paws, an anthology on service dog. Uh, I get into a personal story about me and intrigue and her running and um, her being in grad school with me, living with a guide dog. They're with you 24-7. Uh, so there's a lot of stories um, that and times we got in trouble and times where we had a lot of fun together. Um, but the book uh, isn't just about guide dogs. It's about dog for um, hearing dog for people with deafness, PTSD dogs, uh, dog for people with autism. Um, so, you know, there's a while we typically think of guide dogs when we're talking about visual impairment, uh, there are other kinds of service dogs doing wonderful work out there and the book chronicled a lot of the experiences very cool i definitely look forward to reading both of those myself and i will uh include some links uh to where people can find those in the show notes awesome thank you so much definitely yep Alrighty, well again we've been chatting with brian switzer here on the eyes free sports podcast and uh, brian really wants to thank you so much for your time uh, your insight. Uh, congratulations on your your sports achievements and uh, professional achievements as well. Really enjoyed your story and just want to thank you again here for joining us. Thank you for having me on, Greg. Uh, I really enjoyed being on today. Be sure to follow the Eyes Free Sports podcast at facebook.com slash eyesfreesports and on Twitter at eyesfreesports.com.